0: Welcome to Talking Direction. I'm Gabriel Stelian-Shanks, the Artistic Director of the Drama League, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Nylan, our Associate Artistic Director. Hi, Nylan. Hey, Gabriel. And also to our listeners around the world, thanks for being here. Our guest today, Rebecca Teichman, is a director whose commitment to new work I think really stands as an example of what rigorous contemplative investigation of new ideas and voices can be in the American theater. In 2017, Rebecca received the Tony Award for Best Director of a Play for Indecent, which was credited as co-created by both Rebecca and the playwright Paula Vogel. And Vogel is just one of the many influential playwrights who have turned to Teichman as collaborator and colleague. In recent years, she staged the world premieres of Schoolgirls, or the African Mean Girls play by Jocelyn Bio, Familiar by Denai Guerrera, Luck of the Irish and Milk Like Sugar by Kirsten Greenridge, and a string of incredible partnerships with Sarah Rule, including Stage Kiss, Orlando, The Oldest Boy, and How to Transcend a Happy Marriage. In New York, audiences have been able to know Rebecca's work intimately at Playwrights Horizons, Lincoln Center, The Vineyard, Classic Stage Company, Second Stage, and New York City Opera, among many others. But she keeps equally busy across the United States with multiple productions at the Old Globe and La Jolla Playhouse in California, the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, DC, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, New Jersey's McCarter Theater, the Huntington Theater Company in Boston, and many more. You can check out rebeccatashman.com for truly impressive body of work. And after quickly following in decent with the Roundabout's revival of Priestley's time in the Conways, Rebecca's current Broadway bound project, the musical Sing Street, has had its own fascinating journey. An encounter with John Carney's enchanting film of the same name led Rebecca to seek out its creator, who at the time was best known to American audiences for the musical film Once, which subsequently, of course, became a hit Broadway musical. Partnering with the author, Inda Walsh, Rebecca obtained the rights and set about bringing Sing Street to the stage, ultimately finding its way to premiere at New York Theatre Workshop, the original Home of Once, where Sing Street made its off-Broadway debut in late 2019. A transfer to Broadway was quickly announced for the following spring, and there was even a Broadway cast recording released, which you can listen to now on Spotify, Apple, and elsewhere. But I'm guessing you know what happened in the spring of 2020. Yes, as COVID-19 shut down theaters across the world, it also closed Sing Street's opening, as happened to so many shows during that time. But the story doesn't stop there. The musical is now planning what is being called a pre-Broadway engagement in the fall of 2022 at Boston's Huntington Theatre Company, with Rebecca returning to lead the production that began with her advocacy and determination. It's just one part of the fascinating story we are excited to explore today. Please welcome director, creator, and may I add with pride, Drama League Directors Project alumnus, Rebecca Tashman to Talking Direction. Hi, Rebecca.
1: Hi, wow. That was like the greatest intro ever. <laughs> I was well, the whole thing, if only like 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I could have glimpsed that intro. I would have calmed down so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it is really easy to put together that intro. I have to tell you, you have accomplished so many things, and we're
2: just really excited to dive in today.
1: Well, thank you. It means a lot.
2: Yeah. Um, in the intro, Gabriel spoke about your commitment to the development process of your projects, which is one of the many reasons I think you are so admired by other directors in the field, by many artists in the field. Um, what do you personally find important in the director-playwright
1: relationship? I mean, I guess the most essential element of a really you know meaningful productive and enduring relationship between a playwright and a director to me is trust and um, and i think that and maybe just is speaking on the director side like a really profound curiosity to understand what the writer wants their piece to do and to be so that it's not about an imposition of a set of my own ideas, but rather a kind of process of hopefully excavating and, you know, creating the most powerful version of what that playwright really, really wants to make. Um, And I think that's, you know, it's that process usually can build trust in a very meaningful way, quickly with a writer, in my experience, because just the act of, like the of, of deeply and authentically listening before, you know, kind of diving into here's what I think doesn't work or here's what I think you should do, that it's it's much more about us like a really profound inquiry into, you know, okay, if you. So once I understand what a playwright really hopes the piece, how the piece will impact an audience, then from that place, it's much, it's a, it's a more profound conversation around, is the piece doing that? Does that make sense?
0: It does. It does.
2: Yeah. I, I wonder, Gabriel, before we move on, could you expand uh, your thoughts a little bit on when you want to give a note to a playwright and cause I just think you have a history of working with some of the writers I deeply admire and the way that you help get that script to a place of production um, is key. And maybe like, how, what's that process for you of like giving a note?
1: You know, honestly, my, my, my relationships with writers varies on the, so much on sort of what the writer need that specific writer responds to. So I can say one thing uh, I've learned over many, many years is that I never will kind of analyze a play before I've heard it out loud, which can be very frustrating in a way. If a writer wants, after I've read a play, if they kind of want, you know, tell me what you think doesn't work. I always very forcefully ask that a writer give me the opportunity first to hear it read. I've constantly find I'm surprised by what I think I understand from the reading of a play to the process of you know actually being in a space with the play like in some kind of motion even if it's just people sitting around a table and reading I don't know you know a note I also always say to like I'm I'm working right now with this really wonderful writer. His name is Brian Selznick. He's a very well-known um, illustrator and children's book author. He's written a trilogy of like divine books, two of which we're adapting for the stage together. And I, he always, he's two of his books have been turned into into films, Wonderstruck and Hugo. And he clearly is like he's you know the the vocabulary of working with filmmakers about sort of like give me notes let's does it need a polish you know that kind of thing and i'm sort of like oh wait that's the way i guess i like to i think about notes is um more as provocations i use that word all the time i find them because brian and i are so intimately collaborating right now i'm always saying like he says what are your notes and i'll often say I hate, I don't want to, I don't want either of us to think of them as notes because they really, it feels too prescriptive to me, but Mm -hmm. the idea of a provocation, which like maybe that sounds esoteric or weird, but I think it, there's something about that that feels very true. Like I want to provoke you about something and I'll often say, you know, I know the question, I know something isn't working. But the I may not have the right answer, um so it's often sort of going to in you know to look at it with a deep curiosity rather than a prescriptive solution
0: yeah i I really am responding right now. I literally just wrote down that notes as provocations. Feels to me like an idea of positive energy, of exploration, of of mm-hmm. a, a meant to have artist engage in a path together, and it and it kind of parallels with something I knew I wanted to talk to you about today. Cause in in my preparation and research uh, for talking to you, I found an interview you did about your rehearsal practice, and in it. You were talking about creating safe space, which is a phrase I think a lot of directors wrestle with, and I and I think it's you know um, something that is especially in the conversation in the ethos right now for directors. But in this interview, you defined what you meant by safe, and it and it blew me away a little bit. You and I'm just going to quote you a little bit. You said you try to create a space where people can get frustrated, where mm-hmm. they can make a mistake and explore a mistake. Um, and that you were created safe space is in the tone of whatever the moment is you're crafting in that rehearsal. And then you follow that by saying something I thought was incredibly profound, similar to this idea of provocation. You said that you give lots of notes, but there is also something about loving someone up. The value of that, how powerful that can be if you can feel safe and feel love you can release yourself mm. and I found that to be incredibly potent as we're coming out of the pandemic as artists are trying to be in space again um and then I looked at the timestamp stamp on this interview and you said this in 2009 <laughs> you know uh, uh over a decade before the calls that we're currently having in this moment um you know, and this is a podcast that is listened to by a lot of directors. I'm I'm curious about this notion of, po- of both provocation and loving people up. Is, do you have any thoughts on what we can do as directors now, in our rehearsals, in our processes, to to bring that sense of of provoked exploration and love into a room?
1: Wow. Well, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> it's interesting to me that it's like all those feelings have persisted or those beliefs for so long now that's in me you know it's when you said it was 2009 i it's moving you know that i guess that's that has remained the core and defining organizing principle in a way for Mm. me i'm just thinking what's it's such a provocative and moving question you know how do you how do you create a space where people feel comfortable and welcome seen you know and valued and like they can invest um artistically like be vulnerable and one of the one of the ways that i guess i i don't know it's very deep in my like dna a belief about what makes a space safe is or a room, a process safe is the ability to talk about very difficult feelings or experiences and not deny that they're happening. Like I'll often feel, it's been a while since sadly, since I've been in, you know, a real rehearsal room, but over the years, if I feel somebody is frustrated or sad or, you know, angry, I'll, immediately ask them. And I can't help it. Like it's not a it's not strategic. I just I can't I'm not good at sort of a state of denial about a negative experience. So I remember once a chorus, like somebody in the chorus, I guess actually the ensemble I should say of a Shakespeare like they were you know standing way in the back and I was like I think you're upset what's upsetting you and I remember the actor was like can you just please at least, like just ignore me <laughs> <laughs> you know like right yes I'm having a hard time but I don't need I don't need to talk about it um but it's it's like antennae my antennae are so up to um the feelings or what I sense. And I'm not always, of course, I miss things and I'm not always right, you know, but I do find that if people feel, I have found in the past that if people feel they can say what's wrong, it's the most effective way, you know, to really get to know each other, what each other needs and create a space in which you feel like hopefully the group feels safe enough, you know, to be authentically themselves. I also always say, and I really believe, you know, bad ideas that you might think are bad ideas or impulses that you might negate are welcome. Uh, That, you know, often I think we, and I could say I, like, judge a first impulse as being stupid or seem simplistic or something. And I'm Always reminding myself not to judge like that, because sometimes there's gold, you know, in in that first idea or first instinct that you can miss because you're trying to impress or you're trying to you don't want to seem like you have, you know, simplistic ideas or whatever, some idea of who we're supposed to be. And that I find whenever I say that, and I always sometimes lately, like in the past couple of years, I forget to say it because I just like so think it's a given now. But I'm always working with new people and I find people just breathe this huge sigh of relief, you know, like have your worst possible idea in this room. Bring it, you know, let's explore. Let's not say no to those impulses, Um So, yeah, I guess I don't know if that answers your the question, the like beautiful question that you asked me. I think it does. I
0: think, you know, I'm I'm just deeply struck by the power of your collaborative focus. And I think in an effort to create safety, so many directors are realizing that, oh, we what we're trying to make safe room for is actually provocation. Mm-hmm. It, it is actually interrogation. And, and that is not necessarily safe does not equal comfort safe equals the ability to explore. Yes. Um, mm, and I really awesome. love, I, I, I'm just, uh, deeply enamored with that. So thank you. Yes. You answered that perfectly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> I, I uh, also want to lift the reminder, um, that you spoke for yourself that you need to bring it forward. Sometimes these things become habits, but then sometimes mm. they leave a habit at home. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, I love that reminder. And I think it's done well for you. Um, you're, you're a part of a very exclusive group of artists, uh, a, a daring inspired and rigorous group. And I'm, and I'm talking about you are one of the 10 women um in the Tony Award's 74-year history to win a Tony Award for Direction. Uh, Seven for Direction of a Play, and three for Direction of a Musical. Uh, We all know that this number alone is a call to action, (laughs) and and the commercial sector has much to do and work there. But I, I wonder, with withholding this piece of history, being a part of a piece of history like this, um, what are your thoughts around gender parity, especially in the commercial sector of theater?
1: I mean, you know, as you just said, it's like just that alone, just that number, 10. Like women have won Tony awards for direction is madness. I think just just a cold look at basic numbers tells everything. Both in terms of gender and race, like it is, I think Rachel Chavkin said when she won a Tony Award, she said something like, "It's a, you know, it's a profound lack of imagination that it's such a very small, very limited kind of person that has access to those opportunities." Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's extreme if you're actually willing to open your eyes and really look at it. It's a very stark. Out, out of balance picture in many, 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 many ways, hopefully it you know change is afoot, but it's uh sometimes I think like we just need somehow like publish really publish all the numbers, you know, just do like an accounting in of you know how many artistic directors of color are there, how many women, female. Artistic director, you know, if if, like the starkness of the numbers tells such an extreme story and uh, it's it was, you know, starting doing this a long time ago, it was very hard Um, as a white woman. It was it was just it was really challenging to be just to get the work and then also to not have a negative reputation quickly Mm -hmm. and easily. That I always felt, I mean, it's different now, but I did always, I felt very much that I was walking this, there was like a tiny space (laughs) where I was not perceived as like a real bitch or a, like an indecisive, um, like pushover. And it would flip from one side to the other, like very easily and very quickly. And I was always like thinking, like, what is, how, what is that little space between those two perceptions, you know, as a leader, as a, as a woman leader in a space where there had been so few women leaders? It was a huge uphill process, you know, to find my way through that for personally, just per- speaking. Yeah, just my own Many, many it was took many, 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 many years. <laughs> I, sometimes I felt like there was a gate and there was a key, and I just could I didn't have the key and I didn't know how to get it. I didn't know who had it. I didn't understand you know why I couldn't seem to open it well,
0: and I think you're nailing it pretty solidly that these responses to determination to um women embracing positional power is deeply gendered and misogynistic and and require has you know I think we can see in your career the amount of time that you have had to tenaciously support the telling of your the stories that are important to you um, you know, I was thinking about the collaborations I would love to talk to you about and so many of them are not only, done in collaboration with other women artists but are women's stories of uh girls or milk like sugar and you know the one i kind of rested on that i would love to talk to you about is indecent um and uh just in full transparency to our readers we were lucky enough to have you join us uh prior to the pandemic as a guest speaker at director fest and and in that discussion you told the story of the creation of indecent and um just for any listeners who are unfamiliar, I will catch you up. The, the play Indecent follows the original historical production of Shalom Asha's 1923 play, The God of Vengeance, which is a really important work in, its, um, in the Yiddish theater movement, in the LGBTQ theater m- movement, and in the portrayal of women, um, I think. And um, And that production, of course, represented a same-sex love story that saw the arrests of company members for indecency, giving the piece its title. And what audiences may not know is that this project actually starts 17 years before its Broadway premiere as your thesis project at Yale, where you brought together the text of this 1923 play and the transcripts of the trial. Um, and then, over a long period of advocacy of yours and bringing in Paula Vogel as a collaborator, you, you I, I, and responding to all the things you were just talking about, um, this piece found its way to become a, a, you know, modern classic. So I know you've told this story before. I've heard this story before, but would you mind sharing any recollections or, or lessons in what we're talking about? on how you got this show from Yale to Broadway.
1: Oh my God.
0: Big, big thought, but it it just feels like
1: contextual. You just just know everything about me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I first read Sholemash's play God of Vengeance in my first year of graduate school. And uh, it started then, I was working with a dramaturg named Rebecca Rugg And we found the transcript from when God of Vengeance from the trial, the obscenity trial that surrounded the play production in 1923 on Broadway. And it happened to be housed at Yale, which is where we were students and that transcript. So we sort of thought, Oh, wouldn't it be interesting to look at it? And then, you know, two hours later had this massive document and really my three years as a graduate student were pulled together by trying to figure out how to tell the story of what happened to the play. And it turned out that everything was housed at Yale. I mean, it was just amazing, really. Sholem Ash, the playwright, his papers are, are kept at Yale. And Harry Weinberger, who was the producer of the play on Broadway in the twenties and also then the defendant of it in court, his papers were at Yale. So it was an incredible sort of fall down a rabbit hole, you know, into this moment in the twenties in New York. Um, With like original documents, you could sort of, I felt like I was with those people in some way you know, their handwriting and their personal notes. So I became okay. really obsessed with the story of the of what had happened. Um, and I guess I felt by the time I graduated, like I had inherited this memory and I had to somehow caretake it somehow. I was, my attempts at sort of encompassing the complexity of it on stage weren't successful. So I had, I'm not a playwright. I am a dramaturg and an editor. Um, But I, so what I was attempting to do was combine found materials. So the transcript of the trial combined with the text of the play. It was at that time called The People versus the God of Vengeance. And there was something there. You could feel like there was a, an important story wanting that should be told and not forgotten and really my process was from there was about finding the a collaborator who could do what i can't do and who would have the passion for the story that i had who could share that passion and you know the miracle was that Paula Vogel said yes i mean i barely had the que- spoken the idea and she said yes so she knew of god of vengeance before I brought the idea to her. And I think we we sometimes talked about it as like two Trekkies that found each other, you know, in a very unlikely, in an unlikely way. Um, and she then did more research than I had done, which seemed impossible to me. I mean, I had spent so much time in these archives and and had the, very quickly really, Paula had the impulse that that the story was much bigger than what happened to God of Vengeance in New York in the 20s but rather was that we that she could tell the story of the birth of the play God of Vengeance in 1907 when he wrote it through to um 1953 when when the playwright himself banned productions of the play post holocaust so she took Paula took this idea, this memory, you know, that I had felt I had inherited and expanded it exponentially. it was a very intimate, very extraordinary process creating the piece together. And um, Paula is, you know, not only a really brilliant writer, she's also a brilliant teacher and so you know witnessing paula's process and how she how she thought about right the writing of a play the development you know of a an idea into actual embodiment was an incredible sorry was an extraordinary gift there, I remember joking with Paula at one point about whether we could just keep extending the process of making it because it was so fun and, um, and so beautiful to kind of figure it out together. Uh, so yeah, that's a little, those are some, I could talk about it for hours and hours and hours. It's one of the great gifts of my life, I think, to have had the opportunity to work on that piece with Paula.
0: I could I could too and I and I think the collaboration uh, on the piece is is deeply inspiring to me. I I don't think I've ever told you this, but um, in the early 90s, I was doing a lot of work with queer theaters and I was working with the playwright Rebecca Ranson, who desperately wanted to produce God of Vengeance in Atlanta. Oh. and um, and we we sat with the play for. Countless hours um, trying to figure out how it could speak in a contemporary way, and and never cracked it, and ultimately did not do it. Um, and I remember reading about uh, indecent and and think and being so grateful that artists of you and Paula's caliber were tackling this. And then when I saw the play to see how Paula had contextualized it, how you had created space for a larger canvas for that conversation, it, it just really deeply moved me. And so I, I've never told you how grateful I am, but it's a play, God of Vengeance is a play I have sort of loved and had in my back pocket for a long time. And wow. thank you, thank you for that.
1: I think I did see a production of God of Vengeance in Atlanta, weirdly.
0: and Was Maybe that- they did it after I left. Yeah. It, is, it is real possible.
1: It was, um, I think Joe Chaikin directed it. Um,
0: oh, it's sec- at Seven Stages, maybe? Yes. Yes. Joe did a lot of work there.
1: Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, there was a, I mean, it's so, there was this weird, amazing moment where suddenly productions of God of Vengeance were happening. Um, I feel like it was like the late 90s which is when when I was had first discovered the play too, um and I had a similar experience to yours that I couldn't quite the play it's itself I couldn't quite figure out how to access it and and it was obviously this many decades long process to figure out you know, you make a piece in which the play is your protagonist right it's right a really fascinating thing that um how to do it you know and 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 can you have an audience fall in love with a play <laughs> <laughs> These are all questions that paula really was so brilliant at asking and um and having real faith in sort of the audacity audacity of, of the impulse of the idea that of course a play can be a central character um but I love to know that you had you had discovered the play long ago. And yeah, I,
0: I think this was probably late '80s, '88, '89, oh, yeah, somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah,
1: and that moment.
0: And I think there were a lot of um, queer artists and activists discovering this play in that time, and sort of, it was part of the the history that had kind of been erased. Um, that that the both the the movement around AIDS in the theater and in and in queer liberation started to so this was a script that you know I think was bubbling under but it finding what you were saying that the play is the protagonist inside a larger story it it just clicks something in me it's absolutely um it's it's I you are to be commended uh you and Paula it's a wonderful wonderful project um and someday we will talk about it for hours and hours. But <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm going to shift a little bit. I, I would love to talk to one of your current projects, um, Sing Street. Yeah. Uh, I know I was <laughs> very excited to read that the announcement of the pre broadway run at the Huntington soon in the fall. Yeah. Um, and And this musical seems to me, to be a story still in the making but also instructive about how theater artists have navigated the pandemic and, mm. and, and ensured that important stories get to their audiences and i also want to say that gabriel and i lord <laughs> yeah. we're the people in this office to have a good dance break we got to keep it light and joyful um and um riddle of the model is is a big hit here it's- <laughs> um and-
0: it has been more than one dance
2: break in the Drum League offices, the Sing Street soundtrack.
1: <laughs> I love that. I mean,
2: everybody that. needs a little 1980s new wave energy. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, and, and I guess the, the, where the question lands is, um, what has it been like, you know, to personally to, to to shepherd this musical through this difficult period in the American theater?
1: Yeah. It's been such a difficult time for so many people and like, and you know, and to actually witness and be part of an ent- our entire industry shutting down, you know, I just never, I could never have dreamed that was possible. Um, mm. Just devastating and terrifying. And uh, we were on the, we were in the first day of tech on Broadway for Sing Street when everything uh, closed. And like everybody, I think, or most people, never would have ever guessed. I mean, I remember, you know, a Zoom with the company sort of let go. I remember saying, let's all guess what the new opening date was going to be. And it was like, you know, <laughs> the longest anybody imagined it might last was like three months. We just had no concept of what we were heading into. Um, and I was so passionate I am, I mean, I was, and I am so passionate about the story and about, I realize I'm, in many ways, there's a particular, like, core story that I keep finding different ways to tell. Not, It's not always the story at the heart of what I'm doing, but um, it is a story that I find incredibly powerful and resonant and obviously keep returning to. So for me, with Sing Street, it's it's about, um, you know, a group of kids in a very violent, very oppressive, very dangerous world, finding their way to self-expression and like liberation through music, through making art, and the power of art to really help people survive and find themselves um and so in a way the meaning of sing street because you know that meaning has just has become more kind of potent to me having lost theater for so long and Sort of being forced in a very just talking on a very personal level to like to look at what theater is for me and how it has defined me for so long and to kind of lose that anchor, you know, it very has been very, very, very disorienting. Um, so the story of sing street i guess i'm saying just feels like it's redoubled in its power um and you know it i feel it differently i feel it more i felt it before deeply personally but i feel it now in a new on a new level in a very very personal way and i was very scared that it wouldn't return you know there's so many obstacles to a show of this scale with that you know that hadn't yet found its audience you know with all the money that had already been spent um finding its sea legs again. There was a. There were many, many obstacles that the producers faced and had to overcome and fought to overcome um, to get, to make it possible to return. So I've been, for a while for me, it was very painful to even listen to the music. It just felt like it might disappear. It could possibly disappear. Um, mm. And then when they announced it was coming back, they put this hashtag that's from the final song, we've got another chance at life, which just made me weep. I mean, you know, that it does feel like that. We have this, it feels like a, you know, potentially deeply moving, very important, um, hopeful story and one that could touch people very deeply given what we've all been through. Um, And I'm just so insanely relieved, you know, to not have to say goodbye to it, but instead, you know, to be given this extraordinary opportunity to reinvestigate it, having gone through what we've all gone through, to hopefully grow the production and the piece itself. And, um, you know... Use the passage of time and the experiences that we've all gone through mm-hmm. to make it hopefully that much more powerful an event. So um, yeah, i'm I can't. i I don't even know that I have the right words. you know, I'm so it all feels very tender um, how to kind of step back in. And beyond belief, exciting <laughs> and relief and a huge relief. Yeah, that was a very long answer, I think.
0: <laughs> well, I you know, a lovely. Design. Yeah, it is, and I, I'd also just say, Rebecca, I'm a I'm a big believer that art finds its time. And what I remember about Sing Street, watching it at, at New York Theater Workshop, was how joyous it felt, and and how much i needed to see people who were struggling you know it set in the early 80s in in dublin where no one has a job you know and um and and to find joy in in their experience and i you know i don't know the work that you have done on it or or how it will exist in this new manifestation but it feels like there are resonances inside that story that that could Will resonate for people in this moment. So, uh, you know, congratulations on persevering to thank to you. everyone on that team. I'm yes. I'm excited to see it again.
1: Thank you, thank you. Yes, I think it will. I think it will. Um, it I can say for me, you know, and for everyone working on it, it feels like it's it is moving in a different in a new way. It sort of has that joy. And that like explosion of joy, I think, but Mm. it's like, there's more access to the moment that it's coming out of to that sort of extreme isolation and that like extreme fear in a culture. Um, And then the like tremendous power of coming together and making something making something that has meaning sort of out of a culture of fear um i you know i i wish that definitely speaks to the times yes it does it does Mm -hmm. and i think it um i'm 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 sure the production will grow i can't i can't wait
0: Us too. Well, uh, unfortunately, I am seeing that we are coming close to the end of our time, Um, but we do have a couple of questions, sort of fun questions that we are asking of all the directors who join us for this podcast. Um, And I'm going to start with a conversation about your bucket list. You know, when I I think about your career that you have worked with, you know, such extraordinary artists um, and especially playwrights. But I'm curious on your bucket list, are there any plays you are still dying to do someday? uh, Artists you would love to collaborate with that you haven't yet. Does anyone come to mind?
1: So many. (laughs) (laughs) The list goes on and on and on and on. Um, You know what? I've come to really love doing is it's sort of more akin to Indecent, the process around Indecent, which is coming from the inception. So taking an idea and really then building like a family around that idea and and figuring out how how to bring it to life. And I'm lucky enough to be doing that on a bunch of several large scale pieces. So they feel like bucket list dream projects. Um, that, uh, you know, I learned so much from that, those years making Indecent and that it sort of, as a director, because you don't write language, how you can take an idea and manifest it. um, That's probably uh, right up there is, you know, these, I remember the feeling in the room in Indecent where I thought just, even at the very first preview, I vividly remember thinking these 300 people know this story And they didn't know it last night. And if nobody else ever learns it, that's enough. And you know, sort of finding stories that feel like they resonate that deeply on a very personal level, and hopefully also a cultural and you know a mythic level. Those are the the ones I'm hoping to find and and share.
0: I'm not going to let you off the hook. Is there any specific ones that you're like, oh, I really would love to do this play, or I would love to collaborate with this person?
1: Oh, like I said, really, seriously, the, I mean, it just, there's so many. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I think it's fine to say. Um, there's a British um, pop artist, her, she called, her name is Self-Esteem. Oh, wow. So she's not yet really known in the U.S., but she will be. She writes these incredibly, you know, fierce, powerful, very funny, um, like badass songs about like it's particularly about empowerment and about like just the like the actual act of loving oneself. And what is, you know, like wild liberation of just stepping into owning that. She and I, that's one one artist that I've found. I think of like these people sort of as fellow travelers, you know, that we're, and we're dreaming out a piece to make together. But they're really, um, there are so, I'm, I'm finding them more and more. I want to be working with music. I'm working with um, the rapper Lupe Fiasco also on making a new piece. Uh, mm, so yeah. these, I think it's really exciting to me right now to work with um songwriters who don't come out of theater and who but who are really interested in s- telling stories that have that can like really touch something profound culturally. So, I don't know, there's a lot. I don't know if I'll have time to do it all. <laughs>
0: that I I I think it just I'm really intrigued to discover self-esteem and obviously Lupe Fiasco and Before I turn it over to Nylon with the last question, I'll geek out again on your career a little bit and say, um, as a young person, there was a band that was not deeply popular here in America, but did have one big hit here uh, called Mary's Prayer by a band called Danny Wilson. Mm -hmm. And the major composer of that is the composer of Sing Street. Um, And the joy that it brings me to rediscover Gary in this context, I just can't tell you. Um, he's
1: so insanely good. He's so brilliant. I mean, his music is just extraordinary. Yeah, it's you know, uh, and he's now created a through score with sort of underscore the Sing Oh, Street terrific! Movie. Yes, so gorgeous. Yeah. He's so that's a
0: that's a shout out for Sing Street fans. Go look at the band Danny Wilson.
2: I love that. Um, and the the closes out. You 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 had a moment of this at the very top. Um, after um, the intro speech on you happened, and I saw you run to that past you. Um, and I'm wondering, what advice would you give your younger self?
1: If I could, like, hold hands with my say, twenty year old, twenty two, or something, I think I would just say, "Don't worry, like, calm down, it's gonna be okay." That's that's the advice I would give, Faith
2: i love the relief. i I don't it's weird because i hope the listeners can feel it but you i did such a relief a a breath out just an exhale because i felt your exhale and it was like oh that's that's electric that's a gift
0: i did too i i you know our ability to be kind to ourselves is something i think we have to learn um over time and um having faith that it will be okay is hard sometimes but but certainly useful thank you so much for that rebecca Thank you,
2: guys. Yes, uh, we're at the end here. Thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely, lovely getting to talk to you.
1: You as well. Seriously.
2: We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Talking Direction. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us on all social media platforms with the handle at Talking Direction is a program of the Drama League of New York,
0: America's only nonprofit home for directors and the audiences they inspire, offering
2: essential services and resources to artists in their time of need. Please join us in this effort by visiting dramaleague.org and click donate. Or better yet, be a part by becoming a member. Thanks for listening.